God's kingdom will rule over the world. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. Which means that he will overthrow all of the existing powers and take all their places. Victory will come. Good will conquer evil. The Lord will set all things right. And there will be no more pain or sadness or toil in His kingdom. Only joy and peace and glory forever. Do you believe this this morning? I hope the answer for everyone in this room is yes. We believe this to be true. And yet, we have to admit at times that we do struggle to believe it. Uh, Sometimes we look around us at the world and think, really? Can God redeem this? Will God be able to redeem this dark world? Uh, Christians know and have confessed that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, and that once and for all He will throw Satan into the lake of fire, that He will separate the sheep and the goats, And only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will live forever in eternal blessedness in the new heavens and new earth. But the question is, how will God do this? How will God's kingdom rule over all the world? How will He establish His rule once and for all? I heard an illustration recently in which the preacher in a thought experiment, uh, said, what if God was going to rule over the world through basketball? What kind of team would he make? Uh, Would he compose it of all of the best players in the league? Uh, Would LeBron James and Kevin Durant and Steph Curry all play together? Or would he resurrect all of the greats of all time and bring them in one team to just dominate every other team? It's a bit of a a silly illustration, but I think it communicates this point well. Uh, I actually think that if God were to do it that way, strange as it is, that He wouldn't arrange a team full of the greats. Uh, He would arrange a team with people like us in this room. And the reason is because if you have a team of all the greatest players in the world, what can be said? Well, of course they won. They're amazing. The talent is so much higher and outclasses every other team in the league. But if God uses ordinary people like you or I, then what does it say about God's power in overcoming the obstacles before Him? What we find over and over again in the Bible is that God does not use strength to demonstrate His power, but weakness. He uses the weakness or the weak of the world, to shame the wise. And that's true about his kingdom as well. Some of the doubts and questions I've raised already are thoughts that I think would have likely been on the minds of Israel during Isaiah's day, listening to his prophecies. Because he told them of great judgment that God would make on them, his own people, before speaking about redeeming his people. Our text this morning reassures the people that God will indeed rule over the world, and he even explains how he will do it. And it might look different than what you'd expect. 
So turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 42. Uh, This is the third and final sermon of our Advent series in December. Uh, Advent referring to the celebration of the Lord's coming, Christ's birth and incarnation. We celebrate every year on Christmas Day, but uh, this year we decided to uh, take some time in very famous texts through the book of Isaiah that speak of the Messiah to come, texts that the New Testament authors quote and apply directly to Jesus. What Isaiah has said has come true in Christ. And it's with that in mind, I pray this text and the previous two that we've covered the last few weeks whet your appetite for celebrating the birth of our Lord. Uh, Not only has the one spoken of in this passage arrived, but when we remember His first coming, we are compelled to look forward to His second coming, to His return, the second advent. Chapters 9 and 11 of Isaiah, He spoke of a king that was to come and rule over the people, lifting them out of darkness, dawning on them like the morning light, being full of the Spirit, and yet... While this Messiah is a servant, he's also a son. And in Isaiah 9, specifically, God himself. How does all this fit together? I hope this morning's text makes you all the more confident that God will rule over the earth. And when you consider the child in a manger, you will, like the wise men, see a king for all the nations. You will see the one chosen by God to usher in a new era. And you will see yourself as a faithful servant of His. With all that in mind, let's read our passage together now. Isaiah 9, verse, sorry, Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Isaiah, of course, in his book up to this point, has already spoken of great judgment that was about to occur. In this passage, he speaks as if his audience has already gone through such judgment. 
uh, without making any theological applications here, uh, it happens that Israel is in the middle of a war at the moment. And just imagine if today a, a nation like Iran uh, came and conquered Israel and removed all their people from their land and put them somewhere else, uh, made them slaves. Well, that's essentially what Isaiah told Israel would happen to them. And that's actually exactly what did happen in the year 586 B.C., to the Babylonians. And so if at times we think in our day it seems far-fetched that the Lord would rule over all the earth, just imagine what Isaiah's audience would have thought as he said these things. Yet still, even in the backdrop of losing their land and their freedom, their king, Isaiah prophesies that God will rule over them again and crush their enemies. Our passage this morning is the first of four passages that are referred to as servant songs. They're like poems about the Messiah. You probably know the fourth and most famous servant song, which goes through the end of Isaiah 52 and in through 53. Well, in our passage, this servant is just now being introduced. Structurally, I think the text can easily be divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 4 introduce the Lord's servant, and then verses 5 through 9 depict the Lord addressing his servant about what he will do through him. And since those are the two main structural divisions, I just have one point for each of those set of verses. First, point one, the chosen servant, verses 1 through 4, the chosen servant. Look with me again at verse 1. The Lord says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is the way the Lord speaks of his servant. He's not simply a capable warrior or a machine that will do whatever God programs him to do. He's a person, a person who must have some kind of freedom so as to gain the favor of God, and yet God upholds him, meaning God strengthens him or makes him strong. He is the one that the Lord has chosen to accomplish all of His purposes. He is especially endowed with the Holy Spirit so that He will be able to succeed in His mission. Uh, for God to say that He has put His Spirit upon Him is to say that God has equipped this servant to do everything that's required of Him. God has given Him the ability and the courage and the wisdom to rule over all things. He's the one that God has chosen and given the means to do all that He would have Him do. In other words, this chosen servant cannot fail because God has given him His Holy Spirit. He's enabled him with the power to do everything that God Himself would do. Oh, dear friends, we should take deep confidence when we read verses like these, knowing that God would not have sent His Son on a mission that He could not accomplish. He would not have sent His Son to the cross to die on our behalf if there was another way of going about things. The Lord has chosen the servant who is faithful to carry out His commands. This is very significant language because Isaiah, writing this so many years before the birth of Christ, implies that God had prepared this servant all along, so many years before His actual birth. You'll also notice the language implies that this servant, which we know to be Jesus, is alive and with God at the time Isaiah is prophesying these things. 
And that's because Jesus is the eternal Son of God who was begotten and not made. He was not created when He was first born. Rather, He became a man. He took on human flesh. He added a human nature to Himself in order that He could relate to us and sympathize with our weaknesses. And so He could provide a sacrifice worthy of substitution on our behalf. Now, there are loads of important theological implications of this. First, those who say that Jesus isn't God, we should ask, where was the Messiah before He was born? From passages like this and others, we can determine He was with God the Father. And the New Testament teaches clearly that Jesus was even with God in creation. Second, we can consider the great humility it took for Christ to leave the place of glory to become one of us. As Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This chosen servant who is described in this passage. He's described as one that God delights in. God the Father delights in God the Son. I can't think of a place where this is more apparent in the Bible than in the baptism of Jesus. Um, Jesus begins His ministry. John the Baptist announces Him. He baptizes Him. And when that happens, the Spirit descends on Christ like a dove. And in Luke's account specifically, it's said that the Spirit then drove Jesus into the wilderness. When the Spirit descended, the Father said, You are my beloved Son. Right? The Spirit drives Him into the wilderness where He's tempted by Satan. And after beating Satan in the temptation, Luke says He returned in the power of the Spirit to begin His ministry. So God's delight is clearly on Jesus, as is the presence of His Spirit. Did you notice that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned both in Jesus' baptism, His transfiguration, which is very similar, and in this passage, Isaiah 42. The Father chooses the servant and sends him to earth to establish justice. And He does so after being anointed by the Spirit of God. The Trinity actively works through history. And it's active in securing salvation for us as well. God initiated by sending the Son in love to earth. The Son obeyed the Father, submitting to His will out of love for the Father and love for us. And the Spirit empowers the Son for mighty deeds. The Spirit upholds Him, as Isaiah says, to do all that is necessary. And the Spirit, of course, enables us to repent of our sins and believe in the gospel to believe in His death and resurrection, the truth of His Word. To believe that His sacrifice is sufficient to atone for our sins. The Spirit of Christ upholds us just as it upholds Christ Himself. Our mission is not to establish justice on earth or to secure redemption for God's people like the servant's job is. But the Spirit enables us to continue in faith, to obey God rightly, and to mortify the sins of the flesh. 
just a few points of application for what we've covered so far. First, have confidence in God's love for you. Have confidence in God's love for you. This is one of the many reasons that we as believers can be confident in His love. He loves His Son. He delights in Jesus. And Jesus said that if we believe in Him, we will be in Him, and He will be in us, and that He will carry us to the Father. God delights in the chosen servant, and therefore He delights in all who come through His beloved Son, who are in His Son, because He loves the Son. He will love whoever is the Son's. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that it does not discriminate. It's good news for all who receive it, no matter your history, no matter your struggles or your upbringing, you can be forgiven. God can look at you if you've trusted in Christ, and instead of delivering the verdict that you deserve, which is the same verdict we all deserve, death and punishment in hell, but if you've trusted in Christ, He looks down at you, And he doesn't see your sins. He sees Christ's blood, the blood of his beloved son, washed over you. Now, if you've never put your trust in Christ and long for that same kind of forgiveness, long for that same kind of assurance that you will be saved and be with God forever, consider putting your trust in Christ today. Uh, Turn from your current way of living. Stop living for yourself. Make Christ the Lord of your life. If you have questions about what that might look like, I would love to speak with you more after the service and and talk to you about what that might mean for you. One more point of application before we move on is to simply delight in the Trinity. Delight in the Trinity. It's called a profound mystery at times. But one of the things that the Spirit enables us to have is joy because we are filled with Him who created joy who himself is the fullness of joy. God, therefore, is necessarily joyful, as is the fellowship of the Trinity, which we are invited into. You know, joy is a really contagious thing. Uh, Most likely, if you're around a lot of joyful people, you too will become more joyful. And the opposite is true, of course. Those who are not joyful tend to have a negative effect on others, a dampening effect. But we as God's people have every reason to delight in the love of our Savior and should exhibit that same kind of joy towards one another and around others as a witness for the hope that we have in Christ. The servant is described in similar ways in Isaiah 9 and 11. Namely, he'll rule in righteousness and faithfulness. He'll bring justice to the nations, meaning he will not allow corruption or mistreatment of his people. He will right every wrong and he will establish justice for all the nations. Every land and kingdom will be remade into a place where everything is done the right way. It's not exactly clear what Isaiah meant or what the Lord uh, intended when he said that this servant would not cry aloud or lift up his voice in the street. There's a number of options. (laughs) It could be. Uh, that those who made a lot of noise in the street had the reputation of making lots of commotion, of bragging about themselves without doing anything. 
So the servant might not be like that. It could be that he will be a silent sufferer, which would match what is described in Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before his, its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Well, the third option is that uh, he won't announce his coming, uh, which wouldn't match the birth of Christ so much, but it could very much match his second coming, which will happen when we least expect it, like a thief in the night, the Bible describes. And a fourth option is that he will not shout in the streets the way warriors do when they enter a city preparing for battle, because he comes not as a warrior or a conqueror, but as a gentle servant. Whatever the case, it's certain that this servant is marked by humility. He won't flaunt himself or run a campaign. He will not call out in the streets for justice because he is every bit capable of accomplishing justice on his own. In verse 3, Isaiah gives two images about the character of this servant. He says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a, fainting, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Uh, with these images placed immediately after verse 2, I assume, I assume verse 2 must mean or must line up with this general personality of gentleness and compassion. Uh, a bruised reed is basically a plant uh, that you would see by a pond or a lake. Uh, and if it's bruised, it's bent over, uh, broken, it's not really useful anymore. Uh, yet even the bruised reeds he will not break. Similarly, he says the faintly burning wick, some translations say a smoking flax. It's the image of, of a wick that is uh, only barely burning. It's just smoking. Uh, perhaps you've had a candle that has run to the bottom, and you notice the flame slowly goes down, and then uh, it basically disappears, in, and it's just smoking. And it's just barely lit enough to give off the smoke. Uh, these images describe those who are desperate. They describe people who are at their lowest point. Uh, they describe people who are troubled over their souls. People who are struggling, who feel like they're out of options. This also happens to be the group of people that are taken advantage of by the powerful. But when the servant comes to rule, he will not be overbearing. He won't cause the people to break even those who are closest to a breaking point. He will rule in justice, meaning there will be no corruption, no taking advantage of the weak and the helpless. Instead, they will be defended and cared for. And how do we know that a man can actually accomplish this, these things? Is it possible that one rules and is not bogged down by the suffering of this world? The answer is the man himself who, in verse 4, will not grow discouraged or faint. He will not tire over his work. He, is, he has sufficient energy and attention and time to tend to all the needs of the people. Now, all these statements have been fulfilled in part by the new covenant. Now, just as we live in an already not yet reality, uh, that's how we describe the fact that Christ has come and secured forgiveness for His people, conquering sin in our lives through His death and resurrection. But He's not completely 
rid the world of evil just yet. The already not yet is the church age in which, in, in which we tell others of Christ's rule and the eternal security we can have in heaven. His wrath is patiently withheld for a time, allowing time for people to repent and believe in Jesus. But while the physical realities of sin are still plenty, uh, in Matthew 12, after healing many who had come to him, Jesus instructed them not to make him known. And Matthew, as the narrator, states that the reason Jesus did this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. And he quotes Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Jesus' gentleness and compassion to heal all who come to him. His quiet ministry is part of the fulfilling of this servant song. Verse 4 is very interesting. It's interesting because our translation says that Christ will not grow faint or be discouraged, uh, if you're using the ESV like I am. Uh, But they are actually the exact same words used in the previous verse for bruised, Uh, or quenched, Uh, meaning he will not break those who are bruised nor quench the faintly burning wick. And how can we be confident he's able to bear that burden and we know that he won't be overwhelmed by our needs? The answer is that he will not become discouraged. His spirit will not be bruised in the same way. Uh, He has no sin to bring him to that unworthy grief. So you or I might feel like uh, the light is going out. But Christ's light will never go out. It's always burning bright. Uh, I think that connection is intentional because the words that are used in the Hebrew uh, are rare. And they're used here so close to each other. But as a Messiah's servant, Jesus Jesus is compassionate to all who are brought low by their sin who experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, those who are bruised by it, those who are discouraged to the very last moment of letting that spark of their faith go out. He's compassionate to such people. Another way to speak about Jesus in this context is to say that our sin, as deep and as life-gripping as it might be, will not overcome Christ's compassion. Our sin, as deep and as life-gripping as it might be, will not overcome Christ's compassion. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, famously said, There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. That's a truth that we as Christians must brand onto our hearts. For all our discouragements and for all our weaknesses, Christ's strength will revive us. It means that no matter where you find yourself in life, uh, whatever a state of bruising you've experienced, uh, perhaps you feel bruised even this morning, Christ will comfort and restore all who come to Him. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you have a heavy burden this morning? Run to Christ. His burden is light. One author said that 
this means your burdens do not bar you from Jesus. They should not keep you from going to him. Uh, We use our bruising and our discouragement as a reason to stay far away from Christ. But really, in reality, we should do the opposite. Our burdens are the very things that qualify us to go to Christ. You need not worry about getting rid of your burden and then going to Jesus. This is what most people think. They need to clean themselves up before they approach Christ's throne. Take your burdens with you to the cross. He can free you from them. Thomas Goodwin, reflecting on these verses, had this to say. He said, That which keeps men off is that they know not Christ's mind and heart. The truth is, He is more glad of us than we can be of Him. The father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two to that joyful meeting. Have you a mind? He that came down from heaven, as himself says in the text, to die for you, will meet you more than halfway, as the prodigal's father is said to do. Oh, therefore, come in unto him. If you knew his heart, you would. He comes more than halfway to reach us. A few points of application from these four verses. We don't have to question Christ's disposition to us when we go through seasons of discouragement. Uh, Sibs noted that uh, even the prodigal son knew himself to still be a son. He never said that he was not a son, but he said that he was not worthy to be called a son. Friends, that's our situation as well. Uh, Not worthy to be called sons, but still sons. Return to Christ and you'll find he's already ran to the gate to meet you. Uh, I'm taking some of these things from Richard Sibb's famous work, The Bruised Read, on these verses. It's one of those Puritan paperbacks. I highly recommend it. It's short. Uh, Read through it sometime. Uh, But in a a section of the book, he pulls out three lessons of application. And I see no reason to withhold them from you while we cover this text. And they're this, that weaknesses do not break the covenant with God. Weaknesses do not break the covenant of God. It is God who upholds the covenant. Second, that weaknesses do not bar us from His mercy. Rather, they incline us. God, they incline God's mercy to us. And if Christ should not be merciful to our weaknesses, He should not have a people to serve Him. In this section, Sibs said, Cast yourself into the arms of Christ, and if you perish perish there. If you do not, you are sure to perish. But if mercy is found anywhere, it is found there. Cast yourself into the arms of Christ. A third point of application. Don't assume your bruising renders you useless for the kingdom of God. In an ordinary kingdom and under an ordinary ruler, perhaps a bruised reed would be discarded as useless. But in God's kingdom, under the rule of his servant. He takes even the bruised reeds, even the faintly burning wicks, and revives them, uses them to spread the good news of his kingdom. So don't assume your bruising renders you useless for his cause. Well, that's point one, the Lord's chosen servant. Point two in verses five through nine is the creator's resolve. The creator's resolve. Uh, The passage 
takes a very interesting turn at this point. Uh, you'll notice the shift of language. The attention moves from the servant of God himself, who God sends, to then instructing that very servant. Look with me again at verses 5 and following. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. The Lord is reminding us in these verses that He is Creator. That He is the one who made all things from nothing. He stretched out the heavens, spread out the earth, he gave breath to the people, and He gave souls. Uh, this is a way for God to remind His people that as surely as He has the power to create, He has the power to redeem and to save. Uh, just as He created all things from nothing, so He can bring about a new creation. His servant will rescue prisoners from the shackles of sin. He will open the eyes of the blind, something that Jesus did physically multiple times during His ministry here on earth. Uh, but did you also notice the primary audience in verses 6 and 7? God speaking to the servant directly. In fact, all of the yous in verse 6, I believe there's four, they're all singular yous, addressing one person. Uh, the Lord is speaking to the Messiah. All that the servant will accomplish will be because God as creator upholds him and leads him in doing it. Uh, where do we see that idea in the New Testament? Uh, I would say all over, but here's one place specifically, John 12. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Now, Jesus often talked about how he did the works of the Father, and how he as an individual is directly connected to the Father. He said in the same passage, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. It's clear in our passage and all over the New Testament that God is a God that cares about His glory, and His glory is not diminished in sending the Son to accomplish His purposes. Jesus prayed the night of his betrayal that the Son would be glorified so that the Son could glorify the Father. That's the ultimate end. Jesus prays that he would be glorified so that in his glorification the Father would receive the glory. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Do you see the correlation in our passage to verse 8 in Isaiah 42? The accomplishments of the servant do not take away from the Father, nor do they imply that it is not God Himself who's doing it. Rather, the Lord gets all the glory because it is the Lord who does all of these things. Well, that's part of what the Trinity means. Uh, there is one God we confess, uh, one essence in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, when you think about the birth of Christ today, 
and tomorrow especially. Recognize the birth of Jesus is a very tangible demonstration of God's glory because it's through His Son and His accomplishments that God's kingdom comes to earth, that the servant establishes true justice. What is that justice if not being made right with the one that you have wronged? The greatest injustice in the world is not the things that people protest about today, uh, though, those, though those things might be uh, worthy of doing that. The greatest injustice are not the things that politicians host campaigns over. The greatest justice, or injustice rather, is our sins against our Creator. And it's our sins that brings about strife in the world. The greatest justice, therefore, is what is done by the servant in reconciling people with their maker. It's providing the payment necessary to pay for the sins against the Creator. It's securing of eternal life and restoration of a right relationship with God. Again, if you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself uh, to be a Christian, I want you to know uh, that the greatest problem in the world is the sin in each of our own hearts. It's a sin that causes pain and suffering and injustice in the world. That's the root. Therefore, the forgiveness of sins by God is the first step in establishing His kingdom and His rule over the world. This is what the servant has done. This is what Jesus was sent into the world to do in the first place. And notice just how well it correlates to His tender compassion in verse 3. The chosen servant did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. Jesus himself said that in Matthew 9. That's why he dined with sinners and tax collectors. God will rule over the world. And he will do it through establishing true justice by his servant Messiah. Jesus is the bridge between God and mankind who accomplishes all these things. The Lord even says to the servant in verse 6 that he will give him as a covenant to the people. The servant himself is the covenant. Jesus himself is the promise God has made with us. Can you think of a higher cause to make an oath than by your own beloved son? And we remember this, of course, every time we participate in taking the Lord's Supper. As Jesus told his disciples when passing out the cup, that His blood is the new covenant. Therefore, we celebrate uh, this reality every time we take the Lord's Supper to remember His life and His death and His resurrection. Just a few points of application before we conclude. First, trust in God's power to fulfill all of His promises. Trust in God's power to fulfill all His promises. And when you're tempted not to, Think about the breath that you draw each day. And remember the God that put that breath inside of you, who continues to give it with each moment of every passing day and take it as evidence that He will surely do all He has said. Second, make it your aim to glorify God in all you do. Make it your aim to glorify God in all you do because He deserves all the glory. To acknowledge that or to live for anything else 
is to rob God of the glory He deserves. Instead, let us be a people that participate in His glory as we seek to love one another and to make His gospel known throughout the world. Seek to glorify God in all you do. Third, give gifts with joy as one who's received the greatest gift of all time. Uh, This Christmas season, give gifts with joy as one who has received the greatest gift of all time. Give gifts in the spirit of counting everything in this world as loss because we'll receive the eternal weight of glory that far surpasses the things of this world because what has been given to us in Christ. Remember what our Lord Jesus has quoted saying, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. The Lord concludes this poem about the servant In verse 9, he says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. It's another statement of his unapologetic sovereignty. The Lord knows it will come to pass. He has orchestrated it himself. Just as surely as the former things have occurred and now passed, so the things to come will occur. He's the Lord, and there is none other like Him. It's easy for us, I think, sometimes uh, to read these passages, looking back and make all the connections to Jesus. Of course, we have the New Testament. uh, That makes it much easier. But remember, at the time, Isaiah is prophesying to people in their darkest hour. The Lord is kind to remind them. Uh, He tells them these things before they come to pass which he doesn't have to do. And the same is true for us today. We know what Christ has promised to us, that he promises to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness, that we are rendered righteous before God because of trust in Christ's sacrifice and not our own works, that he will keep our faith until the end. He will sustain and uphold us like he does his chosen servant, that he will return to bring us home to himself. The final application for us is to ask if we are prepared to take God at his word in faith, just like Isaiah's audience was called to do. When you consider the child in the manger, do you believe that God will bring a completion to everything that he began at his birth? And if so, do you see what a marvelous act of love and kindness this Messiah coming to earth is? the tender compassion of a Savior that will not turn away the bruised, who is strong enough himself to bear all our burdens and whose plans are not thwarted by our weaknesses or his enemies. God's kingdom will rule over all the earth. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in knowing the servant who will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice with great joy knowing that the chosen servant you spoke of here in this passage has come. God with us, Emmanuel, was born in a humble state in a manger. In the frailty of a human body. And yet he is kind and compassionate.
He bore your wrath for the sins of the world. Now help us to trust him without wavering. Give us joy this Christmas season, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.